This is Chasing Encounters, a podcast about stories, languages, cultures, and identities. We highlight diversity and intersectionality in contemporary society through respectful and thought-provoking conversations. Hello, everybody. My name is Jesid Ortega, and this is Chasing Encounters, your podcast at the University of Toronto. Today, we have uh, Professor Ruth Hayhoe at the University of Toronto, who is specializing in uh, comparative international education. And I am happy to have her today here with me because we're going to have a delightful conversation about what international education is and comparative education is, and probably we'll be talking about development. So Dr. Hayhoe, thank you so much for meeting me today. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for inviting me. Right on. Thank you. I really wanted to invite any of the folks at the Comparative International Education and Development uh, Center at uh, the University of Toronto. And I was so glad to hear that you accepted this invitation. So to get started, uh, because this podcast is about cultures, languages, and identities, usually what we do at the beginning of the podcast is to talk a little bit about who you are, where you're coming from, a little bit about your context. So if you want to spend a couple of minutes or so to tell us about uh, who Dr. Hayhoe is, who are you and how you got interested in education in general? Yeah, well, I, um, I have been a professor at OISI for a very, very long time, actually since 1986. So it goes back a long way. But my, my interest in comparative and international education started much earlier. When I was very young, when I graduated from uh, Victoria College, University of Toronto, I grew up in Toronto. I was born in BC, but I grew up in Toronto. Um, at the age of 21, I moved to Hong Kong. That was 1967. And I thought I would just stay in Hong Kong maybe uh, six months. You know, in those days, the idea was let me do some voluntary work before I get trained as a teacher. I wanted to be a teacher. I had studied Greek and Latin classics, but I had an elderly cousin who had been a missionary in China, and she had a school for underprivileged children in Hong Kong. So I told my parents, I'm going to go and visit my cousin for maybe six months and see if I can help her a little bit. So I arrived in Hong Kong in uh, June of 1967, just after graduating. My wow. ceremony of graduation was early June, and I uh, arrived in Hong Kong. And it was a difficult time for Hong Kong because, you know, there was a cultural revolution happening in China. Right. And uh, Hong Kong was a bit disturbed. I remember my parents were worried. They said, are you going to be safe? I said, don't worry. I thought I would stay six months or a year, but I ended up staying for 11 years. Wow. And that really changed my identity. I became very fascinated by Chinese people and Chinese culture. I loved languages. So the first thing I did was to learn Cantonese, which is the wow. local dialect of Chinese in Hong Kong. I learned it first. Then later, I learned Mandarin, which is a common language for all of China. They have the same writing system, but the speech is completely different. They, they right. cannot be understood 
uh, mutually, right? So I had those 11 years. I found myself a job. I stayed near my cousin to help her, but I found a job in a secondary school. Mm. And I taught in that school. And I saw all the changes in China. Uh, the Cultural Revolution ended. Mao Zedong died in 1976. Mm. And China began to open. So I thought, oh, maybe the next step for me will be to do some work in China and to help China with its opening. China was very isolated and poor mm -hmm. at that time mm -hmm. and also had a lot of conflict from the Cultural Revolution. So from there, then I, I decided in 1978 that I would go to uh, London, England and do my master's degree. Uh, and I chose comparative education. I already had some classes at University of Hong Kong. And I thought it's really a good field to try to understand the difference between Chinese education and culture and languages and Canadian and also British because Hong Kong was a British colony at that time. So the school had British influence, Chinese influences even more deeply, and then I was Canadian. So all those three. So that started me off both with the languages and also with um, wanting to use comparative education as a way of studying and understanding in deep level another country and culture. I think that's enough to start, right? So 78, I went to London and I went to Shanghai in 1980 to teach in a wonderful university there called Fudan. And then I went back to London, got my PhD and came back to Canada in 1984. So that was a long period, 67 to 84, when I opened my life to the world. <laughs> Wow, that sounds like a very interesting uh, background and context. You have a wealth of experience, and I'm so glad. That's why I'm so glad to have you here to have this conversation today. Uh, let, let me get started about the reason why I contacted you to have this conversation is because um, there are two reasons. One is because, you know, this podcast is listen for a lot, at least for a thousand folks around the world, anywhere from China, Japan, Abu Dhabi, the United States, you name it, Melbourne, Australia, London, England, you know, everywhere in the planet. I have the stats and then usually it's at, at least a thousand people. And then a few folks have contacted me in the past year and requested to explain or to sort of um, have a discussion about what international education is or what comparative education is or what development is, development is. And then, although I, I have some knowledge because obviously I have studied at the University of Toronto at OEC, I have taken classes with um, Carly Manion and Kathy Bigboard, so I have an understanding of what all of this is. But it got me thinking, what a better idea to ask these questions to somebody who has, has a, this wealth of knowledge instead of me that I have two or three years of experience. And that was the first reason why I contacted you. And then the second reason is because I just published um, a book chapter in a book that is called International Education and Social Justice or Social Justice and International Education. And the work, my chapter was looking at my work that I did with teachers, English teachers in Colombia and South America and their students sort of working with peace building and social justice education to teach English. That was the word, that was my chapter that I wrote. And then in my mind, as Canadian, always thought, well, this is work that is international work because I am Canadian, then I'm going to Colombia to do international work, international research. That was in my mind, that's what I, I proposed this chapter to this book. 
and then I received the book and I got it in my hands and I was just going through the chapters and I was thinking that my my chapter is probably one or two out of like 20 chapters that looks like this idea of a person going abroad to do some research. The other chapters were more like about international students in the United States, right? And education about these international students or about teachers in the United States or professors or faculty going abroad to do some kind of teaching work. And that was all, all, main, most of the, the chapters were about. So it got me wor sort of worried, but also curious, was I wrong? Why I'm in this chapter? Is my work international work or not, or yes and no? So it got me confused whether, whether and, and step back a little bit to, to, to get a sense of what you as an expert, what do you think is international education? Is it only one thing or there are many different things? Yeah, that's really a good question. And it's interesting, comparative education as a field used to simply be called comparative education. But then it changed to call itself comparative and international education. So the big society in the U.S., C-I-E-S, the E is international. The Canadian one also, C-I-E-S-C, Comparative and International Education Society of Canada. So I think you're right. And I think the whole definition of international really changed over a long period of time. And I'll just use my own experience to see how I saw the change. And maybe it answers a little bit your question, how you felt about your work in Latin America and how it was understood or how far it's international or not. Sure. So <clears throat> I got very interested in China, as I said, and I became fluent in the languages. I did my PhD in London. I came back to Canada. And it was an interesting time because Canada signed a development agreement with China in 1983. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea was Canadian uh, aid will help China to open up and modernize its universities. So I spoke the language. So I said, OK, maybe I can help. And I also helped the World Bank. The World Bank was giving them loans at that time. But something really disturbed me in those years. And I think it relates to what you said. I found the Canadian mind, particularly the government officials, but even the universities, they thought we, we are going to help China, but China can't help us. We have nothing to learn. I told the government, I said, look, I want my students to go and study in China, just like we bring their students here to, to upgrade and to be able to contribute to development. And government said, no, 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 we are only here to help them. They don't, we don't need any help from them. So I realized that people in the North, as we now say, we didn't use that term in the global North, they thought we are already advanced, we don't need to learn from others, we are going to help them to reach the level that we are. And that made me feel very frustrated. Mm. I thought, how foolish. China has thousands of years of civilization, yeah. universities long before we had universities. Right. Yes, right now they're isolated with some problems, but they are actually a very rich culture and civilization. So I was looking, how can we change this thinking in the Western world, mm -hmm. North America, Europe, that only thinks we are there to help, we are not there to learn. So I tell you what changed for me, and you are, maybe weren't even born then, but after the end of the Cold War, that happened very suddenly in 1991, the collapse of the Soviet Union, I found the Western world opened up a little bit, the North. So I organized a big conference called Knowledge Across Cultures, dialogue, um, a Dialogue of Civilizations. 
and I encouraged people in Canada and the US and Europe to learn not only from Chinese, but also India, which had much earlier universities, the Middle East, which contributed so much to science, particularly in the, before the founding of, of European universities. Uh, optics was really developed by Arabic scholars. I didn't know so much about Latin America at that time. So yeah, I didn't focus so much, but I'm sure there's a similar thing. Very rich civilization, many languages, very rich ideas. And so I really tried to change the whole balance to say, we have a lot to learn. We have to learn how to be learners from other civilizations and other languages. And I published quite a few books. If you go into the department of LHAE, you'll see a huge painting. And that painting has four languages on it. It has Sanskrit, um, Urdu, Chinese, as well as English and French. And that was for our conference in 1992. Um, about knowledge and we brought scholars from all those places so we tried to change the balance to say everyone no matter who what your economic situation is you have so much to learn from other languages uh, history of um, science rich knowledge in different periods of history and then as i developed in the field of comparative education talking about latin america i discovered one of the most powerful theoretical frames uh, that is used still now all the time comes from Latin America, what is called mm. dependency theory. Mm. Some very um, brilliant Latin American scholars, mainly economists, right? Mm. Um, Andrew Gunder Frank is one of them. Um, Cardoso is another. He was later president of, I think it was, um, I don't know, Brazil, one of the Latin American countries anyways. And they really developed a critical framework. Of course, the most famous is Freire. Everybody knows his mm -hmm. ideas, right, about liberating the mind and learning and, and um, using education to really communicate back rather than to be subordinated to so-called northern countries or capitalist countries, but to really pay back. So for me, that was a very, very important turning point, you know, to help the global north to make them turn away and realize we have so much to learn from the south so the group of scholars i like best were based in delhi india and they called themselves the world order model project and the one i most admired he was actually african-american uh, ali mesrui and he emphasized we have to in african universities domesticate in put importance on our own history, our language, build our university around our own culture. Diversify, don't be subordinate to former colonial countries like France and Britain, but learn from China, learn from the Arabic world, learn from every part, diversify. And then finally, counter-penetrate, bring our knowledge, and this is what you are doing. You are bringing your rich knowledge from Latin American contact with the languages and history and bring it back and bring it in to um, the global uh, society. So I think that transition has been very, very important. And I think it makes internationalization much broader, as you said, otherwise it can be only seen as well, students from the so-called global South studying in the North uh, to learn and upgrade. And that, that is a very narrow uh, thinking about internationalization. But you are right, you, you, it has been dominant in some of the literature. So you see that in the book that you contributed to. Too much thinking about 
sort of a, a traditional way of thinking about the South learning from the North instead of the North learning from the South, right? Yeah, thank you so much. I think this was a very good introduction of the idea of international education. And one thing that got stuck in my mind as you were speaking is the idea that this is not only a one-way avenue, but I really value what you just said about this is this is a probably a two-way avenue or a multi-way avenue in which we are learning from each other rather than the North uh, trying to impose knowledge on the South and then we're just going to keep it like that, like that because we want them to be as developed as we are, right? And it got me thinking exactly as you were saying, for a long time, because I, I was born and trained in Colombia in my undergrad, and I, I was reading theories from the North in my reading, like John Dewey and, well, you name it, right? But it never occurred to me that that education was also, or theories about education were also possible in South America until I traveled to the North to here and I started reading Paulo Freire and others. Once I was in the masters and now that I'm in the PhD, that's now when I'm looking back at, at, the, at the theories like Paulo Freire and others. And it was funny because I was reading about participatory action research and I was reading a lot of um, authors from North America and elsewhere. And then in my research, I found out that there was this scholar or, well, a sociologist from Colombia, actually. His name is Orlando Fals Borda. And he ended up, and he was the inventor of participatory action research. And he was not recognized. And to this date, a lot of people who have working on action research and participatory action research youth participatory action reasons do not recognize this person and it got me thinking something is missing and it has to do with something that you just mentioned is because for a long time we have been in this framework of those people from the global south need to learn from us so this is a good segue for my second question which is related to development right like because comparative international education and development is this society that talks about these topics. What are your thoughts on the idea of teaching for development? What are, the, what are the current trends or the current ideas of teaching for development? What do we mean by development now? I know back in the day, a few years ago, a long time ago, development was uh, a researcher. Remember people that I know, they go to Africa or they go to South Asian countries because they want to teach the good models of education because you know they they don't know how to do this. That was the idea. We want them to be as developed as us in the global north. So what are your thoughts on this idea of development? Yeah, I, I guess I could say I, I also learned a lot from my uh, work with China over all these decades about this concept of development. Because you're right, I think the old-fashioned idea was, well, we're developed in the North or the West, and we will teach them how to get developed by taking our more advanced pedagogy or economic ideas and so on. And I think that, that is where, again, your Latin American scholars like Andrew Gunder Frank, um, I think he was the most radical. Mm -hmm. You know, they uh, noticed that what happened with development, uh, the capitalist West used education to kind of um, make people, local people in the South, believe only by following the Western ideas and patterns are we going to develop. But actually, 
really what they needed to do was develop their own ideas and use them. And as Ali Masri, I use this word counterpenetration, bring them to the north, right? Their own ideas and find listeners. And that's where, again, the whole idea of counterpenetration is so interesting, I think, because it's about ideas coming out of the so-called uh, third world. Remember the word, the term third world was actually Mao's term mm. back in the 1960s. Mao Zedong wow. invented the idea of a third world going against the second world, which was the Soviet Union, and the first world, which was the capitalist West, right? So what they need to do is bring their own ideas. And the problem was that the North is not listening. They don't want to hear those ideas, right? So the first thing is we have to start to listen in the so-called global North to hear what are the ideas. And somebody like Paulo Freire, he got listeners all over the world. His ideas are so creative and so important. He became a very well-known figure, but that's not easy. Not everybody can do that. Like you mentioned somebody who invented participatory research in Colombia, but the Global North doesn't know, that didn't want to learn about that. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the point. But then the second point that's very, very interesting and that I kind of tried out in my own research, there were two responses from Latin America. One response, a radical one, to say, cut off all the ties so we can develop entirely on our own ideas and not be dominated or influenced in any way by the outside world. And that was a kind of model for self-isolation. And the Chinese followed that. For 10 years in the Cultural Revolution, the Chinese have a term for it, zi li gang sheng. Develop, depending on your own strength, li is strength, and gang sheng is then you can move forward. Unfortunately, for the Cultural Revolution, it didn't help China develop very much. There was a lot of violence and destruction. A lot of traditions were wiped out, but the new ideas couldn't really take root because the society was so troubled. So in the end, the Chinese leaders recognized this was not really a good model. So the other model, which is more the ideas of Cardoso, Valletta, the other dependency theorists, was we have to have uh, we have to change the distorted development. So we, we don't cut ourselves off from the world entirely, but we bring forward our own ideas and debate and interact. And that's hard work. That's really difficult because there's a power difference, obviously, in terms of global um, geopolitics and so on. So learning how to bring those ideas uh, without total isolation and find a voice. So you are doing it. You are here in Canada. You have these rich roots in Colombia. You're using your own uh, podcast system to bring some of the ideas that you think can enrich the scholarly thinking and ideas of international students from everywhere at OISI. So that kind of, um, Ali Mezuri called it counter-penetration. So you bring your ideas. It's not easy. We certainly know that. But over my lifetime, I watched China originally totally silent and isolated, didn't have much to say, right? To now everybody wants to learn. How come the Chinese got such rapid economic development? Did education play a role in that? They want to hear from the Chinese educators. What did you do that really made a difference? So I really saw that change. And I worked a lot with the World Bank at certain times, just one period in uh, the 90s, one period in 2005. And I found that originally they're totally dominated by, you know, the so-called capitalist powers, you know, United States, Japan, a few European countries, and they put out recipes for development, which they think is applied, should be applied everywhere. But later, most recently, they have been engaging anthropologists and people who would listen to other ideas and languages. And I think Karen Mundy's work 
our professor Karen, uh, she did a lot of work in Africa and her whole idea of global governance showed how uh, non-government organizations, NGOs, Global South organizations uh, began to participate more in world affairs. So this idea of development was not by cutting off and isolating, but by finding patterns to dialogue and change. So why did I like the world order model scholars? I mentioned you there, based in Delhi. One of the leaders was a political science scientist in India called Rashni Kothari. He just died a few years ago. Uh, Ashish Nandi, another famous Indian thinker, another Ali Mazrui, the one I admired most, and several others. And their whole thinking starting in the 1970s, this is pretty early, long before the end of the Cold War, in the 1970s, they said what we need to do is negotiate with the North and ask them to have more reasonable economic relationship, to listen to our voices. And one of the persons who listened, and we have to admire him, was the German Chancellor, Willy Brandt. So he opened a dialogue to listen to the voices of the Global South about economic change and economic development, rather than just saying, we have the model, you follow us. And so even though I can't say it was a dramatic transformation, at least there was listening. The other thing I loved about this group Instead of using the Marxist view of imperialism, imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism. That's what Lenin said, right? They used what um, they call the first founder of peace studies, Johann Galtung, structural theory of imperialism. Imperialism is not only about political control and colonial dominance. Imperialism is about structures in the economy, in the political arena, in culture, in communications uh, that cause the so-called developing world to be subordinated to the developed world. So that theory of imperialism was very important for me because China's worst experience of imperialism was not Europe and North America. It was Soviet Union. <laughs> they sent the Soviet experts home in 1956. They called them Soviet social imperialists. They said they tried to force their system on us. It didn't work for us. We have to reject it. We have to silly gongsheng. I told you that phrase to depend entirely on ourselves and refuse this dominant power of the Soviet Union. So the world order models people they saw it as a matter of structures that have to be changed through through communication and dialogue and also through the organizations of the United Nations. So they worked quite closely with the United Nations and asked for reform. That's been very difficult. It didn't change very much. But at least they thought this is a matter of dialogue and structural change. It's not a matter of Marx's transition from feudalism to capitalism to socialism to communism. That is not an automatic economic transition. Each country has to choose its own political and economic system. But the, the uh, southern countries need to cooperate together and so they, uh, they began already in the 1970s. So I feel that is a very useful framework because it doesn't uh, limit itself to domination in the economic realm. It includes the political, of course, but it also includes culture, language, communication. Who's, where are the news coming from? Who is creating the news? Is the only dominant Western powers creating the news? Where is the news from other parts of the world? And I think the UN organization that has done the most, they're not perfect, but they've done more than any other about this is UNESCO. 
So UNESCO declared a new world information order in the mm. 1990s mm. to say we have to listen to voices, not from the northern countries that are so powerful, the countries of the Cold War, but for all the what they call themselves non-aligned countries. And so many countries of the global south, South Asia, India, African countries. I don't know how far Latin America was involved in this, but I think it was. Um, mm. You could check that out. They call themselves World Order Models Project. The short form is kind of funny. WOMP, W-O-M-P. <laughs> but WOMP for me was a very good frame, you know, for saying how do we learn to listen? And I think that's the key thing. For the so-called advanced countries, I think of themselves as advanced, not just to teach, but to listen and to learn and to respect, you know, other um, cultures. So. Um, the, when they first started in the 1970s, they called themselves the New International Economic Order, N-I-E-O. And that was the group from, they're based in Delhi, India, and they negotiated with Willy Brandt in Germany and with other northern powers to try to bring about a change that would encourage a self-generated development based on local knowledge, local resources, um, exporting as well as importing, not just be dom being dominant. So I have to say, honestly, I found the Marxist frame very good for criticism, but not giving enough agency to so-called developing countries. It's assuming they are passive, they are subject, they can't act for themselves. But they showed, we can see so many examples, how they did act for them. You are a good example, many yeah. examples. Right? So that, that's my thinking in comparative education. And that, because I saw it very dramatically in the case of China, but you, you would also see it in many other cases. And it would certainly apply to uh, your countries that you are working with in Latin America, Colombia, and so on. And the other thing I feel about comparative education, without the critical thinking and theory coming out of Latin American countries, uh, it would be the comparative ed would be much less rich. It's a very mm -hmm. rich contribution uh, right. coming out of this uh, thinking around dependency theory and so on. So that, I'm sorry, I talked a bit too long, but I thought- Oh, this is great. This is yeah. a very comprehensive answer, very well expected from your uh, vast knowledge on the field. I really like it. I really love it, especially the part when you talk about developing countries should not call all the ties or self-isolate. I think you were right on point when you talk about finding the patterns for change, dialogue, and structural changes. So I also thought that when you said each country has to choose their own system by cooperating, I totally agree with you. We all should listen, learn, and respect because at the end of the day, it's about cultures, languages, and communications. And like you said, being critical about what's happening out there, even asking the question, who is creating the news? I think this is very important. So what you said, I think it resonates with the current world that is happening right now. And the, the world, I mean, the work that is happening right now in, in this field. Um, but my last question is related to the idea of comparative education, of comparative research. So is it comparative education of comparative research or is it both? So comparative means, does it mean, is it comparing two educational systems like uh, the United States and Canada, India and the UK, or is it about comparing to classrooms? Because I have friends at OISIA in the SIDEC programs 
that they compare two classrooms within the same school or two teachers in two different districts or two schools, one in Vancouver and one in Montreal? Or is it about um, different types of students, one in Africa and one in Latin America? Is all of the above or is something specific that we should know about comparative education and comparative research? What are your thoughts on this idea of comparative? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think for a long time, the thinking was we are comparing national systems of education. And if you look at the early scholars, people like Nicholas Hans, he was Russian, but he was based in London. Uh, they basically picked out countries and did it by four or five countries uh, comparing them. But I think what's happened over the years with the development of comparative education, it has moved to many levels. So no, no longer simply only comparing nation states, but also very interesting comparisons within countries, like you said. Canada, we have 10 provinces, each is different. US, we have 50 states, right? Each is different. So there's a lot of comparison within units, within countries. I'm sure that's true in Latin American countries, in Asia. But then also we can go right down to the classroom and take classrooms in the same city and compare them, right? Different regions of the city. So it, it can function on all those levels, as you said. But to some extent, it's a question of what methodology you are going to use mm -hmm. for your comparison. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to use a so-called scientific or positivistic method where you collect statistics, and then you try to look at causes and effects. So what are the causes of high achievement in mathematics? Or what are the causes of good language learning? Then, uh, you, you can collect at different levels. You can collect national statistics. Most countries have them. And there's many big studies. The earliest one was developed by a Swedish scholar, and it's called the International Association for the Evaluation of Educational Achievement. IEA is usually the short form. And they began with mainly uh, so-called developed countries back in the 1970s, right? But then in the end, now they collect much more wide statistics about students' achievement in different countries and also in different units within countries. So often within the US, they'll compare different states with outside countries. And the whole idea is if we can find out the cause, what cause leads to high achievement in mathematics. Is it the training of the teacher? Is it the curriculum? Is it the pedagogy? Or, this is the worrying part, is it the social background of the family? If the parents are more uh, economically well off, they can give their children better conditions and the kids will do better no matter what the school. So that's been a very uh, big aspect. And later after IEA, and IEA still continues, we also have PISA. You've all heard about PISA and PISA's mm -hmm. tests mm -hmm. being applied around the world, a little bit different. The first problem with it, of course, is who defines the questions? So are the questions appropriate to different cultures, different languages, different? And so there's been a lot of debate about that and a lot of argument. Uh, is this kind of comparative, positivistic, based on scientific ideas of cause and effect, and the hope that we'll get some universal solutions <laughs> to high achievement, for example? Or, you know, or are the differences so great you can't capture them with numbers, you know, mm -hmm. and the questions mm -hmm. might not be appropriate that are being applied, you know, from, say, global north to global south countries, if you want to take that. So there's lots of debates around it. But it's happening. It's happening all the time. And you probably heard there are certain countries that get a big name. Finland, very successful. Everybody wants to know why. Um, China, particularly. But the, the interesting thing with China, 
when they got the highest marks in the world, it was only Shanghai. Shanghai is not China. Shanghai is a very rich, sophisticated city that is totally different from the rural and remote areas of China. So I'm just sharing with you, there's lots of debates and problems around this approach. Uh, uh, to comparing, right? On one hand, governments love it because they can boast about, oh, my my university's got higher global ranking. My students did better in PISA than other countries. Then they give more money to the ones that do well. So it's very popular. I don't want to say it has no value, but it has limitations, a lot of limitations. But then if you go to the opposite approach and you do an ethnographic study where you actually go into the classroom you observe the teacher teaching math. How do they teach? How do the students learn? Obviously, you can't do many countries. If you can do three classrooms, that's already a lot of work. Maybe three in one country or three in three different countries. And then you try to compare. And this has to be a totally different technique because it's qualitative. So you can't claim it to be scientific in, this, in the way that physics is scientific. But you still try to do it in an organized way and to learn. And I think that's also very, very valuable. So I think your point that you made there is a really good point. You can compare at many different levels. You can compare within classrooms. You can compare um, within units within a country, the provinces of Canada, the states of the United States, there's 52 of them, right? Uh, Within Latin American countries, I'm sure there are also smaller units, not only the national unit, Mm -hmm. right? So that kind of comparison can be very, very useful. Then the other thing that's interesting, and I see that happening quite a lot, is that units within one country might look at other countries to say, what can we learn from them? Is there a way we can improve our, our pedagogy or our curriculum, you know, by making a comparison with, say, two or three other countries? One of the favorite ones people like to choose is, states, is South Korea, because South Korea is a, is a country that had a lot of success with their economic development. And then the question becomes, how did education contribute to that? Can we learn from how education made them more successful? And at this point, I'll just make a very broad comparison, and I'd love to hear your feedback on it. So you can also compare by region. Now we are talking a lot about regions. I guess Europe, everybody thinks about European region, the Bologna process, the kind of integration of Europe, right? Right. Uh, In in, um, Asia, we have ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN. Mm -hmm. And that's quite diverse nations, Thailand, Malaysia, uh, Singapore, uh, Vietnam. They're really quite different, but they gather together and they have an educational unit that works to learn from one another within the region. Then we also have East Asia. That's different again. That's Japan, China, and, um, and Korea, right? Uh, Singapore, Hong Kong are also considered to be East Asian. So regional comparisons are also very, very interesting. And in developing comparative education, I'll tell you a little uh, thought that I got and I sometimes share with my students. Latin America really had the biggest influence on thinking and ideas in the global north because Mm -hmm. dependency theory became maybe about almost the most dominant theoretical, critical theoretical framework used all over the world, very well expressed and applied. Whereas East Asia was very successful, but they don't have theories that became global. I tried to introduce some of their theories rooted in Confucianism, but largely they 
learn from the world. They listen, but they didn't do a lot of teaching. They didn't sort of go out and say, we can tell the rest of the world how to develop. You have to persuade them to do that. Now beginning to do that a little bit as they become economically more successful. And I think the reason is uh, East Asian culture and philosophy is not, uh, is so different from European kind of argument and thinking that it's hard for uh, the West to learn from them. Whereas in Latin America, these brilliant economists, well, Paulo Freire is the most famous, probably not so much economist, but also uh, Frank Cardoso, they, they wrote so brilliantly. They had a huge influence. But then at the same time, I don't know what your uh, judgment is, you know, they didn't, they didn't experience the kind of, the same degree of economic flourishing that East Asia experienced. Mm. So they still struggling with lots of issues around poverty and inclusion and education and so on. Whereas first uh, Japan, then South Korea, and then China in the recent two decades, you know, seem to have incredible economic progress, right? And then the puzzle becomes, well, how did they do that? They did it on the basis of a completely different philosophy and mindset and idea about learning and about, you know, children. So, so I think you can compare on so many levels. You can do regional, you can do national, you can do international units within nation states. And that you even have to ask, is the nation state a, a, a universal term? Because neither China or India feel like a nation state. So China sometimes gets called a civilization state. <laughs> it's so much bigger and different from the nations of Europe that came out with the idea of nation state. And also India. So one of my students did a study of India. He called it a state nation. It's totally different from a nation state. But anyway, it's still the unit we tend to use because the United Nations recognizes, you know, nation states, a certain right. number of them around the world, right? So nation state, within nation state, and then, as you said, within the classroom. Three different classrooms, you know, so you, you have all the different levels. But depending on what level you are looking at, you may use different uh, frames. So if you're going to use quantitative and do it through surveys and um, testing, statistical testing and gathering data, you can have a huge number. So IEA might have 35 countries. The more countries, the better, you know. It's a, but then they don't pay much attention to the different contexts, different history, different mm. thinking. But if you do ethnographic, then you can only do a few, maybe three, four, five. It's, unless you spend a whole lifetime, it's pretty difficult to do a study where you look at you know, ethnographic level, looking at classrooms, looking at districts within cities. And then, of course, you have to use a different method. So I think it, you're right that, Comparison can happen at every level. And, the, and whoever is doing the research, they have to choose their problem. What do they want to research? And then what kind of comparison will be useful and what methodology will, will be suitable for that kind of comparison? All right. I think you have explained it very well, all of these with very specific details about what comparative education is, about what international education is, and about what development is. And I think I, you have cleared my mind a little bit of, of all the thoughts and ideas that I have for a long time. And I really hope our listeners have a more nuanced idea of what all of these topics are. And I hope to distribute this uh, among my peers in the Comparative International Education Society as well. 
Well, I just want to say I, I have been so happy in all my years at OIC. I, I came in 1984. As I said, I was a postdoc originally. And then I became assistant professor. And then I was away several times. I went to work in the Canadian Embassy in China from 89 to 91. And then I worked in Hong Kong from um, 97 to 02. I was leading a new university for teachers there called the Hong Kong University of Education. Uh, but mainly I was based in OISI. And I have been so happy to see the work of the Comparative International Development Education Center and scholars like you who are very active, volunteering, organizing people, finding others to work and collaborate with. And I always felt a bit sorry that we didn't have a department. So we don't have a department of comparative international. But what we do have is a center that supports research and seminars. But we also have something called a collaborative program. And I think you may be part of that program, right? Mm -hmm. So that means you may be enrolled. I don't know if you're enrolled in CTL or social justice education or LHAE. But whichever department, once you are enrolled in their program, you can additionally be enrolled uh, in side program. And I just realized I had forgotten this, but I, when I was the associate dean for a very short time in 1996 and 97 uh, at OIC, I was the one who learned from the University of Toronto about collaborative program mm -hmm. and arranged to set up. Already we had a center headed by Professor Joe Farrow was a very famous scholar in this field and I know you've heard of him but he passed yeah. away maybe seven or eight years ago but at that time there was no program and we established the collaborative program in 1996 on the model of the University of Toronto where you can get a degree that has two titles so one title is your main one maybe it may be his curriculum, right? Or maybe it's language education or social justice education. But then you can also have a second credential, comparative international education. And so I'm sure you're in that one. Quite a yep, few of my students, you get both your specific field in education and also your qualification in comparative international. And I think that is greatly enriched. In a way, it's even better than a separate department because all departments can participate not only one department focusing on comparative international. And that's the way it should be. We need to have comparative international thinking and ideas in the curriculum department, in the higher education and education leadership and adult education department, in the social justice department, even human psychology and applied, um, psych human development and applied psychology. A little bit more focusing on individual learning and so on, but also can uh, participate. So I think that has been a, a very, very important to OISE to not just be limited to education in, you know, its own, own fields, but say all education has to be open to the international influences and ideas that can so enrich it and also to doing comparison around the world, which can help us to, again, broaden and deepen our understanding of learning, of education systems, of how education supports achievement in different knowledge areas, and also how education supports economic development, because that's been one of the concerns of organizations like the World Bank. How, how can countries use education investment to support the opening, the strengthening of their economy? 
So those would be my final words. And I, I'm, I'm very, I, I was very, I came along to your seminar a few weeks, a couple of weeks ago with Norin Taj. I had not met you, but I knew Norin. She was in one of my classes. And I heard your name a lot. I thought, here's somebody very active inside. I really like to hear, get to know you. So I was so happy to be at your seminar, inside seminar. And then when you contacted me, I thought, oh, that's perfect. Now I have a chance to get to know you a little bit better and your ideas and learn from them. And I'm so happy that we had this opportunity. And I, I want to say I appreciate all that you contribute to SIDE. That's very important. Without scholars like you participating and volunteering, it could not be such a dynamic and lively program, uh, reaching out to all the departments of Boise and even more widely as it is. So thank you very much for your leadership. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you so much. I really appreciate all of your ideas. Everything that you have said today has inspired me. And obviously, I hope that inspired our listeners as well. Your ideas about being open to all of those of knowledges and ideas from all around the world is the reason why I'm in the collaborative program uh, specialization here of comparative international education. I am in CTL and language and literacy education. Mm -hmm. And I have learned so much from everybody I have met in the specialization program that I, I think myself, I sort of have, I'm richer than before in terms of knowledges from all the people that I have encountered. And I hope that this podcast is just one tool that is gonna help us spread this word to around the world about the knowledge that you already know so we can preserve that knowledge that you have so other people that cannot take your class can at least listen to this knowledge that you have provided today thank you so much for being today i really appreciate it